0: We uh, will be looking in First Peter, and I want to ask you if you'll turn with me to First Peter chapter 5. I was thinking about this passage and what it has meant to me over the now decades. Uh, I think I first started kind of really digging into this passage over 40 years ago when I was working in a church in Richmond, Virginia as a youth and music pastor, and it has been an encouragement to my heart over the years. Yes, I got a phone call um, or a text from Isaac. It was either Wednesday or Thursday, maybe maybe Wednesday. He said, we are now yellow alert. We've got sickness in our household. He was doing fine at, fine at that time. On Thursday evening, uh, Kim and I drove up to Richmond, Virginia uh, to see grandkids, and we said hello to the parents also while we were there. <laughs> But uh, we, um, got, I got uh, a text from, uh, from Isaac on Friday, and he said, we're now at orange alert. He says, I feel bad, but if I don't get any worse, I'll be able to preach Sunday. Well, yesterday morning, 1030, I got a text, and he said, it's red alert. <laughs> so, so here we are, and I hope you're with me. in uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, but yes, as Seth said, let's keep the Mooney Hams in our prayer. It's really been going through the family. The last we heard, the last one standing was Corey, And she was still standing this morning, I think, but uh, let's pray for the whole family. Let's look together in God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. So that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we have sung about your ancient words, and we thank you for speaking to us through your word, the Bible. Now we have read some of those words, and Father, as we think about those words, I pray for the help of your Holy Spirit in speaking in listening, and in taking to heart what you have to say to us. Oh, God, thank you for speaking. Thank you for the written word. Thank you for the living word, Jesus Christ, your Son. And, Father, as we come, we pray that you would open our hearts to hear his voice. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. When I was uh, in seminary, I had some part-time jobs working through uh, seminary, Uh, and one of those jobs was that of being an assistant to a pharmacist in our town, in uh, Warsaw, Indiana. And I worked with uh, a unidose system of getting medications to nursing homes under his direction, of course, and. Sometimes we would run out of a particular med that we might need, and there were other pharmacies in town, and he would send me over to the other store to pick up what we were out of and what we were needing. And one day that was my job and privilege. And as it turned out to be, I really am glad it happened to me that day because the lady in front of me, waiting to talk to the pharmacist, said something that I had to go home and write it down because it was so good. And I think I was probably thinking something like, I might can use this in a sermon someday. (laughs) And I've used it more than once here at Wake Chapel. But she walked up to the pharmacist and she said, give me something to keep me going, something to put me to sleep, something to take away the headache, and something to take away the dark clouds. And I couldn't help but think about her and how much truth was probably involved in those quips that she gave to her pharmacist. And the interesting thing is, he could probably have given her something for everything except the last one. And that is to take away the dark clouds. One reason I like the book of First Peter so much is that Peter was writing to Christians who were going through dark clouds of trials. David, your mic is scratching on your beard. Please bend it outwards. Where is the microphone right here? I love it. These guys in the booth are great, man. They are awesome. See if that's any better. I don't have time to go home and shave my beard, so we'll have to be here. <laughs> I do have some water here, though, in case I need it. I've gone through some crud fairly recently, too, so if I do that, it's water. <clears throat> Not something to take away the headache. But Peter was writing the lesson, is that better, Matt, to encourage these folks to stand firm in the true grace of God. And I want you to look two verses farther down in 1 Peter to look at the purpose for why Peter wrote this letter. I love what Peter does here. He says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. In what? The grace of God. Stand firm. So he's writing to encourage these Christians, and he's declaring things to them, and he's exhorting them, and he's going back and forth. And what he does here in the first chapter, and I want you to flip back to chapter 1 because this helps to set some context for it. Before instructing them as to how to respond under the dark clouds, he reminds them of who they are and of what they have because of Jesus Christ and because of their relationship to Jesus Christ. So I want you to look at this in in chapter 1, verse 1. He reminds them of their new sense of belonging. He refers to them as elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That's modern-day Turkey. And then he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And he's reminding them of their new belonging. You are chosen before the foundation of the world by the Father. The Holy Spirit is involved in sanctifying you. And it's for your relationship to Jesus Christ to be cleansed By his blood. But then look also down at verse 3, and he reminds them of their new life because God has caused them to be born again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused you to be born again. And then he goes on and reminds them of their new hope because they have been born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Then in verse 4, he reminds them that they have a new wealth because they have been born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And then he goes on and reminds them that they have a new security. The inheritance is being kept, but he says, You're being kept. He reminds them that they are being kept through faith by the power of God. And then he reminds them of their new sense of destiny in verse 5 because they are being kept for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. He's saying there's more coming. This is who you are. This is what you've got. And he, and he goes back and does more of these throughout the book. We don't have time, of course, this morning to look at all of them. But I wanted you to get that feel for Peter saying, okay, now I want you to remember who you are. I know what you're going through. But as you read through 1 Peter, we also discover that because they are Christians, they've got a new set of problems. Because in addition to the problems that are common to all human beings... There is a sense in which Christians have a new set of problems and pressures being mistreated and marginalized because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And I can't help, I've got to give a little parenthesis here. I can't help but believe that that we're going to experience this more and more and more in our lifetime because of the direction of our culture. Somebody said this, wherever Christians live and whenever they take seriously their call to follow Jesus, they will be subject to the ridicule of the world, the roaring of the enemy of their souls, and mistreatment from the enemies of the gospel. But Peter goes on in verses 6 and 7 back in chapter 1 and shows them but you also have a new perspective on these trials. Look at verses 6 and 7. In this, talking about our salvation that we're looking forward to, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, the gospel of Jesus Christ changes everything. It literally changes everything. We have a new belonging, new life, new hope, a new wealth, a new security, a new sense of destiny, a new set of problems, but a new perspective on those problems. And therefore, we can have new responses to those trials when they come. And that's what I want to look at with you for the rest of our time. Is from our passage in chapter 5, I want to look at four responses that we see in these six verses. Four responses to the dark cloud of trials. First of all, in verses 6 and 7... Responding by recognizing the hand of God. Now that's a mouthful. What does that mean, recognizing the hand of God? Well, look what Peter didn't say in verse 6. He didn't say, Humble yourselves under the circumstances. They had some circumstances, but that's not what he says here. He didn't say, Humble yourselves until things get better. Things were going to get better. And he didn't say, humble yourselves until those difficult people are out of your life. That happened for some of them. But I love what he says. He says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. I have to confess, I too often look at second causes Oh, this circumstance, that circumstance, that person, this person. And I forget that all of those things are in my life under the mighty hand of God. It's God who's in control. Those circumstances are not in control. Those people are not in control. God is in control. And I imagine it would be a heavy weight if we went around the room this morning and took a, a little uh, census of the different kinds of trials that all of us are facing this morning. The load would be heavy. But the Lord knows it all and it's all under His hands. And... Recognizing the hand of God, I think in these verses, involves at least three things. First of all, it involves being humbled under the mighty hand of God. Here in verse 6, that, this verb of humble, it says humble yourselves. It's in the passive voice, which means we could translate it literally this way. Be humbled. Or allow yourself to be humbled under the mighty hand of God. God is up to something. And I love the way Peter starts at verse 6 with the word therefore. And you know the rule, don't you? Whenever you read in the Bible a therefore, you're supposed to see what it's there for. He says, therefore, humble yourselves or be humble. Look back at verse 5 right before it. He says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject. He talks about submission throughout the book of 1 Peter. Don't have time to go through all of that this morning, but here at the end, it's submission in the church. And he says, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For, and this is another important word, for, this is why it's important to clothe yourselves with humility. For God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. God singles out pride as His grand enemy. He sets Himself in battle array against pride, and when God opposes anything, guess who wins? God opposes the proud, but don't you love what it says here? He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, allow yourselves to be humbled under the mighty hand of God. Those circumstances, those people, whatever, those various trials, that mistreatment, that malignment, that misunderstanding, allow yourselves to be humbled under the mighty hand of God. And when someone allows himself or herself to be humbled under the mighty hand of God, he or she is in the position to discover new depths and new riches of grace. So, Peter says, allow yourselves to be humbled. And as we go through those experiences, they are painful, necessary, temporary but purposeful and that leads to another thing involved in recognizing the hand of God and that's the the importance of of waiting because it says in that 6th verse so that at the proper time he may exalt you so what is it going to involve to be exalted by God well sometimes we don't know all the answers to that as to how he will do it, and when he will do it. But it says it's going to be at the proper time. That, those two words, by the way, proper time, is, is those two words translate one Greek word, and it's the word kairos, and it, and it doesn't refer to just minutes and seconds and minutes and hours, like on my clock time. But it refers more to situations, fitting situations that are characterized by suitable circumstances. So it's translated proper time, at the right time, at the proper time, he will exalt you. Now we do know one thing that's going to be involved in an exaltation for the believer in Jesus Christ Because it's a theme that goes throughout the book of 1 Peter. And it's it's a joint theme. On the one hand, it's suffering. And on the other hand, it's glory. Suffering, glory. Suffering and glory. And Peter refers to these together. And here in this passage, twice he does it. We won't take time to look at the other three in depth. But look at verse 1. Verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. So Peter says, I saw the sufferings of Jesus. And think about, think about the Peter you know as you read these words from 1 Peter. Peter saw the sufferings of Jesus. But he says... I'm a fellow partaker with him of the glory that's going to be revealed. We're going to see another reference a little bit later in this passage. But flip back to chapter 4 for just a minute. I want you to see another two verses where this joint theme comes up. And I think it's important for what we're looking at this morning. He says in verse 12 of chapter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So here's one thing that we can know for sure for the child of God. One thing that's going to be involved in being exalted at the proper time is going to be sharing in the glory that Jesus Christ has and will share with his children. What a day that will be, the song goes, when my Jesus I will see. So Peter says, okay, be humbled. There's grace there for you. Wait. Wait. God will exalt you at the right time. But there's another thing involved in it here, and thank the Lord for this as we see it in, in verse 7. As we're waiting for God's proper timing, we have the awesome privilege of casting all our anxieties upon Him, knowing that He cares for us. Look at verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on him. What do you think of, of when you think of that word anxieties? Worries? I can remember when I was growing up as a little kid, my mother called me worry wart. Worry wart. My sister is here this morning. I don't know if you remember her calling me that yet. You do? Wow. It must have been even worse than I thought it was. Um, worry wart it was almost like if I wasn't worrying about something, it worried me that I didn't have something to worry about. (laughs) So I could, you know, look around for something to make life normal. But worries, anxieties, are those things that they distract and divide our mind. They disturb our peace. They put us in a kind of a state of being pulled apart. And I was challenged and encouraged and convicted when I heard or read years ago about this whole thing of worry when a guy pointed out to me that worry is a subtle form of pride. Wow. Now, when you're worried, you don't look proud. But he goes on and says worry is a subtle form of pride and it's sin because it denies the love of God. It says he doesn't care. It denies the wisdom of God because it says he doesn't know what he's doing. It denies the power of God because it says he's not able to help me in this. And it denies the sovereignty of God because it just lives like he's not in control. I don't know why I did that. I am in control. But we must do something with those anxieties and with those worries. And Peter knew that, and he knew they had them. And this is what Peter says. Cast them all on the Lord. Cast them all on the Lord. The word casting here refers not to a mere quiet laying or placing something. Oh, I'm going to cast cast them on the Lord. It's done. But the word, it implies maybe some difficulty and maybe some energetic energy. Oh, I don't know. Maybe implying even some prayer. I've thought about this since I've been thinking about this verse for for a while. I believe the book of Psalms helps us to learn how to do this, how to cast our cares upon the Lord. And if you want to learn, if I want to learn more and more how to do it, read the book of Psalms. And you'll see the psalmist going through stuff. And he says, Lord, this is, how long, Lord? How long? This is where I am. Woe is me. Where are you? And all kinds of questions. And then he gives them. And he says, this is it. Lord, this is it. This, this is who you are. This is who I am. This is where I am. Lord, help. Lord, help me. Here it is. I thought, I'm rambling. But you get the picture. Cast them. Pour out your heart. If it's big enough to worry about, it's big enough to cast on the Lord. And I'm so thankful he can handle the big ones and the little ones. Now this Peter who wrote this book learned, I think, this. Because he finishes this verse by saying this, because he cares for you. And literally that phrase is literally translated this way. It matters to him concerning you. That's a literal translation of that phrase, he cares for you. It matters to him concerning you. Do you believe it matters to God, child of God, concerning you? I think Peter learned that in some demonstra- some uh, obvious ways. It's easier to say obvious. Some obvious ways. Jesus healed his mother-in-law. Jesus gave him a great catch of fish. Jesus helped him pay his temple tax by saying, Peter, go catch a fish and get a coin out of his mouth. Jesus helped him to walk on water, and then when he was sinking, Jesus pulled him back up. And in the book of Acts, when he was in prison, the Lord sent an angel and got him out of prison. So I think Peter says it matters to him concerning it. he knew it and he's reminding you and reminding me and a distinctive of Christianity is this simple and wonderful and profound truth God already cares. We don't coerce God to care by our obedience or by our ritualistic deeds or by our prayers. He already cares. He already loves. So Peter says, Cast, casting all your cares, your anxieties upon him, for he cares for you. And we must remember that the mighty hand of God brings into the lives of his children that which first comes through his caring heart for them. Now I guess in a sense, this may lead to kind of, uh, maybe a sort of carefree type living. Uh, not carefree in a reckless sense but it does not lead to careless living and that leads to a next response and these last three will go probably faster than the first one so don't get nervous Uh, lunch may not be cold when you get there the second response verse 8 verse simply this remember you have an adversary remember you have an adversary Be sober, Peter says. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Peter knew this by experience. And he encourages us to be alert and to be aware. He talks about, first of all, our mindset. And he uses this word, sober-minded. It's interesting to me that Peter uses this word two other times in the book of First Peter. And I want to take the time to ask you to look at these two other because uh, I think they're enlightening for what we're looking at this morning. Sober-minded. Look at chapter 1 verse 13 where, by the way, we find the first command that Peter gives in his letter. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on what? The grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's saying, okay, you think soberly. Flip over to chapter 4 and verse 7. The end of all things, chapter 4, In verse 7, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded, there it is, for the sake of your prayers. Now in the context of these two, chapter 1 and chapter 4, both of these passages, Peter is emphasizing the importance of being sober-minded because the end is at hand. In view of the end times, Peter says, you stay sober-minded. Here, back in chapter 5, verse 8, he is emphasizing the importance of being sober-minded because of the enemy that we have as believers. So let me put all three of these together. In chapter 1, verse 8, we need to be sober-minded, setting our hope on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, verse 7, we need to be sober-minded because the end is near and we need to be sober-minded for the sake of prayer. And here, back in our passage, verse 8 of chapter 5, we need to be sober-minded because we have an enemy. So it's important that we not be intoxicated with pride and worry with an unrealistic view of the world in which we live, but be clear-minded about who we are, what we have, and the grace that is available to us now in Jesus and the grace that's coming in the future. Now he uses another word, and that's the word watchful. And I've got to mention this because I think this word was important to to Peter. It says, be sober-minded and be watchful. Shortly before his crucifixion, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him to the Garden of Gethsemane for a time of prayer. Listen to what Jesus said to them in verse. I'm in Matthew 26, verse 38. He said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Watch with me. Same word, Jesus said. Then... Down two more verses. He came in verse 40. He came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me for one hour? Same word. Then, two verses, one verse later, Peter heard this same word again when Jesus said this, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So Peter uses that word. He heard this word, watch. And now he says, watch. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone whom he may devour. We need to be alert. But also we need to be aware of the enemy. He's the master of camouflage. One guy put it this way. Sometimes he comes like a snake seeking to lure people into moral corruption. Sometimes he disguises himself as an angel of light, attempting to deceive people in the spiritual realm. Here, he comes as a roaring lion. He's bent on terrorizing God's people through persecution. And we find out that this enemy is personal. Look what Peter says in verse 8. Your adversary your adversary, your adversary, the devil. He's a living personality with no respecter of persons. He's persistent. He says he's always prowling around. He's always seeking someone to to devour, but he's also purposeful, and his purpose is always destruction. And he wants to undermine our confidence in the Lord. He wants to silence our confession that Jesus is, is Lord, and he wants us to renounce our faith and to stop following Jesus. And Tom Schreiner, in his commentary on 1 Peter, said this, alertness and awareness are necessary because the devil is prowling about and is using suffering to roar at Christians, hoping to frighten them into apostasy and hence to destroy their faith. Many of us know this morning some who have said, I've reevaluated my faith. I'm no longer a follower of Jesus. That's what the enemy wants. But it's important that we're not just alert and that we're not just aware, but that we have the third response in verse 9 that we resist. We resist the adversary. Peter didn't say run from the devil. Peter didn't say rebuke the devil. Peter said resist the devil. And in another passage it says resist the devil and he will flee from you. But Peter says here resist him in the faith and in knowledge. How did Jesus resist in temptation? It is written, it is written, it is written. He referred to the faith. He referred to ancient words that had been delivered to the saints. We have those words. He says, resist him in the faith, the faith, literally. But he also says, resist in knowledge, knowing, and I love this, that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood, not only in Fuquay, Verena, but around the world, around the world. McDonald has said this. He said, one of Satan's devices is to discourage us with the thought that our sufferings are unique. Nobody has ever gone through this. That's not true. Not only have others gone through it, others are going through it right now somewhere in the world. And by the way, in the book of Psalms, I believe there is no emotion that will ever be experienced that's not mentioned in the book of Psalms. So I'm not alone in my little pity, worry boat. And neither are you. John Calvin said that the enemy likes to seek to sever us from the body of Christ, our brothers and sisters in Christ. I mentioned this the other week. One of my professors at at school uh, said something that struck a nerve with me because it's true of me. He said, sometimes I go to church and I'm not believing, and I bump into people who are believing. And they encourage me, keep trusting, keep looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of of our faith. But also, we come to church and we bump into one another and we can pretty much guarantee that a couple of those people we bump into are going through some dark clouds that we don't even know about. So Peter says, you resist the adversary. He wants you to stop following the one to whom it matters concerning you. But Jesus wants us to keep following And again, Peter wrote the book of 1 Peter. Listen to what Jesus said to him at one time. And this was before Jesus took him to the garden where Jesus told him to watch. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Jesus said this to Simon. But listen to what Jesus said. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you turn again, Jesus knew Peter was going to deny him later. In fact, he told Peter that. But Jesus here says, Peter, when you turn again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, here goes Peter, I love it, Lord, I'm ready to go to prison and to death for you. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times. But earlier he said, Peter, when you turn. I love the little phrase that Martin Luther is 21 after. Y'all, we're doing great on time. (laughs) I'm not going to pat myself on the back yet because I'm not, I haven't done number four yet, but it's, it's short and it is so sweet. But I love that phrase that Martin Luther <clears throat> put in the mighty fortress is our God. He said this, For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great And armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. On earth is not his equal. We're not equal to the enemy. Look what Peter says in verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while. The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, settle you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. The enemy's equal is in heaven. And the one who's in heaven is with his people. And he's pouring out grace. And he's saying, stand in my grace. I'm with you. There are two incentives to rest your utmost confidence in God. That's the last response when you're under the dark clouds of of trial. Rest rest my utmost confidence in God. It's a battle. First of all, because of who he is. I love the way he, he says the God of all grace. He is the all-time source of all-time help for all the needs of all believers for all time throughout all the earth. He's the God of all grace. There is no need that His grace does not meet. He's the God of glorious purpose. He says here, He's the one who has called you With a view to his glory. Remember that theme, double theme? Suffering and glory. He says here, after you have suffered a little while, he will do something. But before that, it says, he has called you to glory. It's coming, child of God, it's coming. So trust him because of who he is. And then, secondly, because of what he is doing. Because he's doing something. And what he is doing includes suffering. It includes suffering. It's obvious. It's under his mighty hand. It says here in verse 10, after you have suffered a little while, that phrase, that word, little while, is also in chapter 1, verse 6, uh, in, in which you rejoice, though now for a little while... You have been grieved by various trials. It, it, you, you're, it, it's coming. And if it hasn't come, it will. So what he is doing includes suffering. Trials that are varied, painful, necessary, purposeful, but temporary. But what he is doing is intensely personal. There in verse 10 it says... He himself will do something. He will restore. He will strengthen. Settle. He will establish you. What he is, he is doing involves preparation. Jesus at one time said to Peter, Peter, Satan has demanded you. He wants to sift you like wheat. But he said, I'll pray for you that your faith will not fail. And after you turn, I want you to strengthen the brothers. Peter is strengthening the brothers and sisters this morning because we're reading his words. Peter denied Jesus, but on the shores of the Sea of Galilee after his resurrection, Jesus met with some disciples there, and he talked to Peter three times. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Peter, I want you to feed my lambs. I want you to tend my sheep. I want you to feed my sheep. I want you to follow me, Peter. So when Peter says, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus will himself restore, Jesus restored Peter. He will strengthen you. Jesus strengthened Peter. He will settle you. He settled Peter, but Peter needed more settling later on, like we will until we go to glory. We'll need settling all along the way. Jesus established him. He was not perfect, but he was a servant. 27, after the hour, and the Heidelberg Catechism says this, In God I trust and doubt not that even all the troubles which he sends to me in this veil of tears, he will turn to my good. He's big enough to be able to cause all things to work together for good to those who love him and who are the called according to his purpose. I think it was... Swindoll that said years ago, nothing touches me that hasn't passed through the hands of my heavenly Father. Nothing. And then he said this, everything I endure is designed to prepare me for serving others more effectively. Everything. God's working. God's doing things. And God wants you to stand in his grace. She must have been a lovely lady. I never saw her, never knew her. She was a lot older than me by a couple of centuries. Her name was Carolina Sandelberg, and she was referred to as the uh, Fanny Crosby of Sweden. We've got two of her hymns in our hymn book. She was a fragile lady in health, I've read. Very artistic, must have been close to her father who was a Lutheran pastor when she was 26 years old off the eastern coast of Sweden she and her father were on a boat ride the boat lurched through her father overboard she saw her father drowned and uh, she was already a poet and I read one guy that said the next year she wrote 14 Poems and what she was doing, she was um, processing her grief with scripture, and then writing poetry. That was the way way of her uh, that she did it. I'm not a poet, as they say. You can tell by my feet; they're not Longfellows. I'm sorry, Um, but that's the way she did it. She processed. Processed it with scripture and with poetry. One of the poems she wrote that year was "Children of the Heavenly Father." We're not going. I'm not going to refer to that. We're not going to sing that one this morning. But she talks about we're children of the Heavenly Father. Where well, she could quote the words, I can't, but they're wonderful. Find it in the hymn book. We're going to sing another one that she wrote seven years after that. She didn't write this one the first year, but she wrote this one seven years later and it's day by day and with each passing moment strength I find to meet my trials here trusting in my father's wise bestowment I'm no cause for worry whoa or for fear and I love what she does she uh you can go ahead, Trudy and start doodling, if you want to. I love the way Trudy doodles. Um, the first two verses, she talks about what she believes about the Lord. She says, "This is what I believe. This is what I believe." But when she gets to the last verse, she prays, and she says, "Help me then." And may God give you grace. May God give me grace this morning to recognize his hand. Child of God, remember you've got an adversary whose purpose is destructive and hateful. Resist him in the faith and in knowledge, but then rest our utmost confidence in God of all grace and glorious purpose. Let's sing it together and then we'll pray this benediction from 1 Peter chapter 5. It's number 56, I believe. Yeah, 56. In our hymnal, day by day and with each passing moment, strength I find. Would you stand with us, please?